I'm Aaron Hinkin. This is the Maryland Curiosity Bureau. Uh, my name's Liz Hoy, and my question is, what's the controversy around the Roland Water Tower in Hose Heights? Liz, right now you and I are standing at the base of this tower, the Roland Water Tower. This is a big, beautiful, brick, Rapunzel-looking tower. It just got restored. What is, what's your interest in this place? Um, so it is important to my family. Um, I am related to the builders of this tower, and there's actually a plaque on the other side from where we're standing where you can see that uh, John Stack and Sons built this. Um, and John Stack is my great-great-great-grandfather fascinating. I'm glad you found your way uh, to me with this question. This tower is right on the edge of where Roland Avenue goes by this little neighborhood called Hose Heights. What do you know about this neighborhood and that controversy that you mentioned? So um, two women came to the Medfield uh, community meeting and told us a bit about the history of Hose Heights. Um, It is a historically black neighborhood uh, in Baltimore. And what I've heard is that the surveying that went on wasn't what they'd hoped it would be. um, And people felt that they weren't heard and their opinions weren't listened to in the planning process. You're talking about the neighborhood of Medfield, which is uh, maybe a mile over uh, west of here, where we're standing right now. You walked here to come visit me and and ask this question. And you mentioned surveys. Uh, This tower got restored. And then there became a question of like, well, what happens next now that we've restored this nice tower? That's where the surveys come into play. And you want to know what's going on. This has become the source of some kind of an argument. Yeah, it seems I saw signs go up in the neighborhood. um, And so it seemed like a pretty big deal um, and that people were upset about what was going on. I want to know more about it and find out what's going to happen to it. All right, Liz, I appreciate the question. I'm going to see what I can figure out for you. Cool. Thank you. Hose Heights is a very close-knit community. Um, It seems like a lot of people know each other. It's really rooted in history. Um, And there's a few people who are dedicated to preserving that history, I found. This is Jasmine Vaughn Hall, neighborhood reporter at the Baltimore Banner and my co-host for this episode. Jasmine, glad to have you riding shotgun with me on this episode because you've recently spent some time researching the history of Hose Heights. So uh, what can you tell us? Well, if you go back in time to the mid-1800s, Hose Heights wasn't called Hose Heights yet. It was actually a big stretch of farmland. And what happened was this farmland came into the possession of a man named Grandison Ho. And one thing you might find surprising about Grandison Ho was that he was a freed slave. Not your typical antebellum real estate magnate. Right. And no one's quite sure who sold Mr. Ho this farmland, but the 1860 census lists him as the owner of this giant property, which was worth $3,600 at the time. And he'd built a house on it, and he and his wife Lucy farmed the land. And they had kids. Five kids. And they all farmed the land together. And when those kids grew up and had families of their own, Grandison Ho built houses for them right next to his house. Then those kids had kids and they built more houses for them and so on and so on, generation after generation, until it kind of became its own neighborhood called Ho's Heights. And in fact, there are descendants of Grandison Ho and Ho's Heights all the way up to today. Grandison Ho is my great, great, great grandfather. This is Joanne Kent. She's 66 years old. 
She currently lives in the house that Grandison Ho built originally for his daughter. When Miss Kent was a girl, she lived with her parents in West Baltimore, but she'd come and stay with her relatives in Ho's Heights every summer. We thought this was the country because I grew up off of Pennsylvania Avenue where it's concrete everywhere. Now we want to keep in mind, Ms. Kent was a kid in the 1960s, which is about a century after Grandison Ho built that first house on the farm. And at this point in history, Host Heights was not so much a farm as a neighborhood. The horse stables had been turned into car garages, and there were lots more houses, but the streets were still gravel. There were big yards and fruit trees everywhere, and this neighborhood was still very much a black community. Yeah, we should say uh, the Great Depression had hit, and Grandison Ho did have to sell off some of his land, but he always made sure to sell it to black buyers. In fact, after World War II, the Ho family made the neighborhood a destination for black veterans looking to buy a home. And so at this point, the people living in Ho's Heights were no longer farmers, but a lot of them were making a living doing domestic work in the all-white neighborhood of Roland Park, directly to the north. When Joanne Kent used to visit Ho's Heights as a kid, they stayed at her aunt's place, and her aunt ran a laundry and ironing business out of her house. And I, I re- distinctly remember our dining room not being a dining room, but stacks of clothes being on chairs and on the table and on the buffet. And I honestly don't know how she kept it straight, because there were different folk that would drop their clothes off. And we had coal stove where we had to shake the coals. There was no heating system except the coal stove. In the summer, we sat on the porch and played jack, so we played hospital, hospital, stick them in the eye, who mm-hmm. stole my apple pie, mm-hmm. five, ten, da-da-da-da-da. This is one of Miss Kent's longtime neighbors. Her name is Eleanor Peters Matthews. She's also a descendant of Grandison Ho. And I am 78 years old, so I have been in Ho's Heights a long time. At five years old, I took the bus around here, right over on that corner there, and went in town to my segregated school. Because I guess Roland Park Elementary and Middle School was up there then, but I couldn't go there, of course. I think it's worth noting here that this little neighborhood of Hose Heights was a real demographical anomaly in this part of town, right? Absolutely. It was a black bubble surrounded by white neighborhoods on every side, Roland Park to the north, Hamden to the south, and you'll hear older residents like Miss Matthews talk about how insular and tight-knit it was. It was a black community, and everyone looked out for everyone else. So this was a time of nourishing our blackness, I guess, in a way. It was also a time of racial hostility. We were told we could not go from this area or you would be beaten up. This is Joanne Kent again. One summer when she was 11 or 12 years old, she and her brother and sister decided to take a walk past the water tower that marked the boundary of Ho's Heights. We were just curious. I have to say that none of my family spoke ill of white folks. They weren't even mentioned. So we knew they existed, but we I never had any problems. But that particular day, we decided to walk out of the water tower and down to Cold Spring Lane. And there was a white gentleman standing there, and he literally, in a very loud voice, say, you don't belong here. You need to go back where you came from. And we were upset. We did not understand. And so we came back home, and we asked our Aunt Kitty about why was this, and that's our first lesson in prejudice. And it was broad daylight. She also told us about the sundown laws. And absolutely, you could not go north or south after the sun went down. 
there was a penny candy store at the end of Roland Heights before Falls Road. This is Terry Logan, another longtime Host Heights resident. And of course, as a little kid, you migrated to the candy stores. But it was a pretty um, scary decision to go down Roland Heights to the penny candy store because you had lots of aggression on both sides of the street. But, you know, little kids get through that, but, you know, it's a little confusing. When you hear stories like this, you can imagine what a relief it was for these kids to get back to Host Heights. And when you talk to these women about those childhood memories, they'll tell you that the water tower was like a symbol that they'd gotten home. Yeah, this tower sits on a little island of green grass, and it's got access roads on either side of it. And it was literally and figuratively the gateway to the neighborhood. We actually did our interviews with these women right in that park at the base of the tower. This little section right in here was our safe haven. This park is exactly the same way it was when I grew up here. This park was a mainstay. This is where we played. That wall, I think all the teenagers were on that wall until the lights came on. And you had to, you had to come in. Hose Heights stayed a black neighborhood all the way up to the 1980s. That's when white homebuyers started noticing the nice houses there and the prices. My name's Kitsy Lee. I bought my home with my husband back in the mid-80s. I think we bought it for $38,000. Miss Lee was one of the first white residents in Hose Heights. She says at first she was nervous about how she'd be received, but she found that she was welcomed with kindness and open arms. We shovel each other's paths. We look after each other when we don't, when we don't see that Eleanor's out. You know, we, we take care of each other, and it's just a blessing that I found my way here. New residents, white and otherwise, are still finding their way to Hose Heights, and uh, they're paying 10 times more than Kitsy Lee did for their houses today. It's uh, an interesting story, the story of Hose Heights, because if you walk through the neighborhood now, you would never guess its history. If you look at citydata.com, the neighborhood is currently about 75% white. Add to that Latino and Asian residents, and less than 10% of Hose Heights residents today are black. So that's pretty much the history of the neighborhood in a nutshell, which brings us up to the present and to this neighborhood controversy over what should happen to the area right around the Roland Water Tower. Right, the tower that our listeners' great-great-great-grandfather built back in the mid-1800s. Interesting side note, this tower was almost demolished a few years back. It had gotten so run down and unstable, the city was getting ready to knock it down. But then, along came some saviors. My name is Michael Falk. I live in Rolden. That's a little neighborhood that sits between the Roland Water Tower and 40th Street, which is where Hamden starts. Michael Falk moved into the neighborhood just south of the Water Tower about 14 years ago. And I've really enjoyed living in this neighborhood. It's a great place to live. He says when he moved in, he and his husband used to really enjoy taking their dog out for a stroll around the Water Tower. And then shortly after that time... um, pieces of terracotta started falling off the top of the tower. I guess that was probably happening even before we moved here. And the city decided to put a fence around the tower, which we thought was a terrible shame because it sort of limited the ability of people who lived nearby to enjoy the space around the tower. And um, it was really an eyesore. I mean, it really communicated that we were like a neighborhood that was in disrepair, I think. So Mr. Falk got together a group of neighbors who live in the area. They put up a little informational table in front of the tower. 
they started to raise awareness about the plight of this historic structure. And we called the group the Friends of the Roland Water Tower. And, and you know, it was a collection of neighbors from Roldan, from Roland Park, from Hose Heights, who all thought we should do whatever needed to be done in order to get the water tower repaired and the fence taken down. And you succeeded. The Friends of the Roland Water Tower got enough money together to get it fixed like it is today. Yeah, well, it took 15 years. <laughs> and, you know, at the beginning, people would walk by the table and say, oh, you're wasting your time. But after, you know, 15 years and getting a lot of people to be aware of the problem, having a bunch of events at the tower to, I think, get people to understand what a great place it was, everybody was able to work together. And, and we got the fence taken down. We got the tower restored. It's, it's a great story, I think. A great story, but a story that was about to get a whole lot more complicated, unbeknownst to Michael Falk and the Friends of the Roland Water Tower. Right. This group had teamed up with another organization called the Roland Park Community Foundation to secure the political connections and the funds to restore this tower. He says they were instrumental partners. First of all, they are very organized, (laughs) and they were able to help us make contact with state legislators and things to get bond bills on the agenda of the state legislature. But then what was really crucial was that when it came time to do the work, the city was only getting bids that were much higher than the amount of money that we could raise. And so at this point, Roland Park Community Foundation offered to take on the contracting work for the restoration. And the job got done. Everybody agrees that the tower looks great now, but while it was being restored, the question came up. What should happen to the little area of public land around the base of the tower? This is a little three-quarter acre plot of land that served different purposes at different times throughout history. It was a trolley car turnaround, then a bus turnaround, then it got opened up to become an access road in and out of Hose Heights, then it was closed off entirely when the tower was being renovated. And now... There are people, including the Roland Park Community Foundation, who paid for the tower renovation, saying like, hey, maybe we should get rid of these roads and make a nice little pocket park. Let's see what the neighbors think. And so Roland Park Community Foundation took it upon itself to gather a few neighbors from the surrounding communities and ask us to formulate a recommendation. What should happen to the area around the base of the tower? Could it be improved and how should it be improved? Michael Falk ended up on this multi-neighborhood steering committee and they contracted a landscape architecture and urban design firm in Baltimore. Right. This is a company called Unknown Studio. And they would help guide us through the process of getting community input, finding out what uses people envision for the space and get a sense of what people envision the space being. We surveyed digitally. We also surveyed with paper ballots that were handed door to door. There was also a drop box and a comment box on the site. Um, And we got, in total, about 800 individual responses across those two surveys, which is huge. This is Claire Agri, landscape architect from Unknown Studio. Those 800-some-odd responses came from 20 neighborhoods around the water tower. Hose Heights, Roland Park, Rolden, Hamden, Heathbrook, Keswick, Wyman Park, Evergreen. And the questions they answered were like, what do you want this public space to be? Would you like it to be a park or a roadway or some combination of both? Should there be traffic both ways or one way or should there be no traffic lanes at all? And across the board in every neighborhood, the majority wanted no lanes. 
One thing to note, though, that majority was a lot slimmer in the neighborhoods closest to the tower itself, where residents use the access roads regularly to get to and from home. Right. In the further away neighborhoods, 90 percent of folks said, sure, close the roads. A park sounds nice. But it wasn't as clear cut in the Heathbrook and Hose Heights survey. So we were seeing a response of more like 60, 50 to 60 percent of Heathbrook and Hose Heights wanted the roads closed. So the steering committee, which was this group of seven volunteers from Hose Heights, Rolden and Roland Park, they really took their time and they looked at all of the data. They considered all the factors, price, permitting, public perception, ability to get grants, viability in terms of coordination with DOT in the city, maintenance, um, and safety. And so with all of that data and all of that backup and really taking their time over about approximately eight months between the second survey and the third event, the steering committee made the recommendation to close both lanes. And that is where what seemed like a smooth sailing process hit an unexpected iceberg. We didn't, we weren't surveyed. And it was fortunate that we had a town hall meeting that brought us all together and we found out we weren't the only ones that were not included. Coming up, voices of dissent band together as the Hose Heights Action Committee and they decide to run a neighborhood survey of their own with decidedly different results. You're listening to the Maryland Curiosity Bureau. More in a moment. The people that they have brought in to boast and build their survey, they don't use this road. They don't live in the walking community to the tower. Terry Logan gathered with a half dozen neighbors at the base of the Roland Tower to talk with us. These neighbors have joined forces as the Hose Heights Action Committee to protest the process that's led to the recommendation to close the access roads around the tower. You don't live in this area but you want to control our daily lives in terms of closing off the street. Ms. Logan is 70 years old and black. Her neighbor, Hannah Morford, is a couple generations younger and white. Paternalism is real, and that has happened. I think often white people don't realize the harm that they're causing. But to me, to see how people with power and money are able to make decisions on behalf of others is just outrageous. The history here is, uh, is deep and um, enduring over the generations. It's really something I've come to learn. This is the voice of Baltimore Brew reporter Fern Shen. She's been following the story of the Host Heights Action Committee. She says the group includes direct descendants of Grandison Ho and other longtime residents. So those folks uh, rallied together and they also found allies in Heathbrook to raise the issue and to conduct their own survey, which Uh, had quite a different um, finding from the one that the steering committee did. That original steering committee survey, remember it said more than 50 percent of Hose Heights residents were in favor of removing the access road? Well, if you look at the results of the Hose Heights Action Committee's uh, survey that they conducted uh, going door to door, I think it was 86 percent said, no, uh, we don't want you to take the roads out. So quite different. That's what brings us to now, which apparently a third survey process is underway. Yes, you heard that right. A third survey, essentially to referee these other two dueling surveys. 
and maybe bring this conflict to some kind of resolution? Here's who's holding the political hot potato now. I'm Councilman James Torrance of the 7th Council District in West Baltimore. And I'm Odette Ramos, uh, Councilwoman for the 14th District, which is basically Central North Baltimore. Council members Ramos and Torrance have agreed to step in to mediate the dispute, which has got a lot of folks feeling really bitter at this point. Uh, We are very sensitive to um, how complicated this is and so want to make a good process where everyone's voices are heard. The idea here is to do a total reset on the whole situation and to start a fresh neighborhood survey from scratch. Councilman Torres is taking the lead on it. He's got professional experience as a lawyer and a mediator. So to give you an idea what this process is going to look like, we're meeting with members of the community first to discuss the process. A process that's going to include public comment on the wording of the questions to be asked and then two rounds of certified mailings to residents. In that mailing is a survey as well as a fact sheet in terms of how we got where we are, but also recognizing in that packet the history of Hose Heights and how there is members of the community that are of color who look just like me who feel marginalized. So for me, it's honoring making sure that that voice is heard, but also doing a process that's transparent. Here's what Councilman Torrance anticipates that the survey will include. A few of the ideas about what the questions will look like is one looking towards whether persons want the road open or closed, but also do they want to park or not a park and what amenities would they like along with it, regardless of what is the road or not. Is it open or closed? Torrance is aiming to distribute this survey to a narrower geographical band of residents directly around the water tower so as to avoid the criticisms that have been leveled against the initial round of public feedback. The councilman says the survey should be ready to go out in the mail by the new year, and residents can also expect to be contacted by his staff to arrange for door-to-door in-person surveys. For the disputing parties behind these initial dueling surveys, the emotions range from exasperation to bitterness. But it seems like now that it's out of their hands, there's almost a sense of relief. Well, I'm really thankful to our city council people because I really, really think they've stepped up Michael Falk again from the Friends of the Roland Water Tower. And I think that's the most important thing is that we get people to the table who can be representative of the neighborhoods and think about how we balance people's desires about the space because there are four communities who abut the tower. It's everybody's space. We have this vicious fight going on over this road, but we need to talk. Terry Logan, again from the Hose Heights Action Committee. You know, it's all about the history. It's all about bringing it to the table. It's all about negotiating. And I think if we bring the temperature down and talk about the practicalities, what's really going to change if we choose one solution over another, not limit ourselves to one particular solution, we could come up with a way to make our neighborhood better for people who come in the future long after we'll be gone. The small projects are sometimes the most complicated, and this is a great example of that. Claire Augury again, the landscape architect from Unknown Studio. The history is, depending who you ask, you get different stories. And I think it's also emblematic of how important this work is in Baltimore and how Baltimore can really lead solutions to good work in the public realm. It's all tied to 400 years of racism and systematic uh, racist policies across our country. But here in Baltimore, it's all right at the surface, right? Because we're right on that north-south line, and depending who you ask, and it is it is all very, um, very raw here. So I think we need to be honest and open and try not to force folks into defensive positions because that's when everybody shuts down. And so what I worry about right now is that it's all just going to shut down. 
everybody hurts and will do nothing. For her part, Fern Shen from the Baltimore Brew says this whole story has unfolded a lot like a classic dramatic tragedy, complete with heroic intentions, fatal flaws, hubris, reversals of fortune, and maybe, just maybe, a lesson. There's so much terrible history here, and I think it's impossible to overestimate how deep and hurtful that history of racism is and, you know, systemic racism. I mean, people here remember it sort of lives on over generations. You know, we're over here, we're the maids and chauffeurs for people over there, and we can never live over there, you know, by covenant. That That's a tough thing. So the lesson for people in the public process, I think, is to not think that you can deal with those issues simply by talking about process, but to really just kind of open your heart and open your ears uh, and listen to people and to be sort of humble about what's going on and what the deeper issues are and to stop and kind of always check yourself. And maybe, I don't know, maybe if that had happened here, we could have, some of this could have been headed off. Jasmine, you've reported on this story in your own right. You've been following it as it continues to develop. What do you think of Fern's assessment? And what's your takeaway here as a, as a journalist and an observer of race and neighborhood politics in Baltimore? Can you foresee a way for this story to end in some other way than tragedy? Well, I like what Fern said about not intentionally trying to ignore a group of people or a community. I think it really boils down to noticing when you've done something unintentionally and addressing it. Because a lot of times it's rooted deeper in something that you just don't know about. And addressing it and talking to people in the community is the best way to get to the bottom of it. Jasmine Von Hall, thank you for rolling with me on this episode. And uh, on that note, we're going to turn back now to our listener, Liz Hoy who asked this week's question and whose great-great-great-grandfather built the Roland Water Tower way back in the day. Liz, that water tower has seen some history, including this very contentious chapter of recent history. What are you left thinking here at the end of this story? I am so glad that we connected so that I could hear the entire story uh, about the tower. I had no idea how important it was to people in a tumultuous time in Baltimore's history. It's interesting to see the amount of working together that people did and how sometimes despite your best intentions, that can go awry. Um, And I'm glad that people are now looking at this from a systemic racism perspective and that the residents of Hose Heights are hopefully going to um, be heard, and I hope that there's a good outcome for them from this. I wonder what your great-great-great-grandfather would think about how history has changed. I mean, the fact that his tower is still standing is pretty cool, but the world is a a mighty different place. Yeah, when I was um, looking up information uh, about them, um, I found out that they did own slaves at at that time uh, that they, you know, ran this building company. And so it is interesting to me to think about what they would think about the way that, you know, the world has changed. And um, I'm glad that we are looking at it from this perspective now, um, that that we are trying to change uh, the way that we go about planning so that things can be better in the future. 
Liz Hoy, this was a truly fascinating question. I learned so much history and just had my eyes opened and my ears opened and my mind opened by this story. Thank you for asking the question. Thank you for inviting me on the show. And now, as they say, this just in, hot off the presses, and right as I'm getting ready to hit publish on this episode, my partner, Jasmine Vaughn Hall, has just reported this latest news at thebaltimorebanner.com. Jasmine writes, Barriers that were put up on the horseshoe-shaped road around the water tower blocking access to the historically black neighborhood of Hose Heights have been taken down. Mayor Brandon Scott ordered the barriers to be removed. Mayor Scott said in a statement that the road closure was never intended to be permanent. It was supposed to be a temporary solution as city council members worked with communities to find the best use of the space after conceptual designs for a pocket park at the base of the tower caused a conflict between several communities. Quote, given the amount of time that has passed, the administration determined it was more of an inconvenience for community members for the south side for the street to remain closed while this work regarding the design concepts continued. Therefore, the decision was made to open the road. There it is, the latest in this ongoing story as of December 5th, the publication date of this podcast. And uh, we'll keep you posted as the story develops. That is going to wrap it up for this episode of the Maryland Curiosity Bureau, an original production of WYPR in partnership with the Baltimore Banner. Big thanks this episode to Banner reporter Jasmine Vaughn Hall for rolling with me as co-host. You can find Jasmine's reporting at thebaltimorebanner.com. Got a question of your own? You can put us to work at wypr.org slash curiosity. And uh, where we go next... It's up to you. By the way, if you like the show, you can do us a favor and drop a review on Apple Podcasts or whatever app you listen on, just a line or two. Your words really do go a long way toward helping other curious listeners find their way to this podcast. I appreciate you. For the Maryland Curiosity Bureau, I'm Aaron Henkin. Thanks for listening. Be in touch. And we'll do it again next week. The Maryland Curiosity Bureau is made possible with grant support from the Peel Center for Baltimore History and Architecture. Online at thepeelcenter.org.